This morning's reading comes from uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Today is part three of um, somebody just earlier referred to it as a trilogy. It's a three-part series of talks on Romans chapter 8, which I've been working through. And so we've come to the last third of that, um, that passage and it's, if you remember, well, those of you here two weeks ago, the chapter 8 has got like bookends to it. it. It's a passage where Paul is wrapping up or, or in one sense summarising but also getting really excited about the, the importance of what he's been saying in everything prior to this part of his, his letter. And so chapter 8 starts with that magnificent statement, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And chapter 8 ends with the last verse that was read to us this morning, no separation. And I just want to unpack a bit of that last section for us now. Any of you who've uh, ever been in um, holidays in in hotels or motels might have noticed in the drawer alongside the bed a Gideon's Bible. And if you've taken the opportunity to look at one of those, you might have noticed that when you open up the Gideon's In the front section, before you actually get to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there are several pages of information that say, you know, if you're in need of this, then look here. If you're you're afraid, look here. If you feel alone, look here. And it directs people to various parts of the Bible. And it's great to know that there are guides like that that point people in certain directions to hear what God's got to say about, well, life circumstances and how we should cope. One of the passages that sometimes gets pointed to is Psalm 56. And just to look briefly at um, that, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but I just want to look at one particular spot in it. The psalmist is writing at a time when things are not really great in his life. And he says, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. Now it sounds like someone who might be in a battle, doesn't it? Under war. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. And so he goes on to talk about what is happening to him. And this is someone in the midst of a crisis, calling out to God, not someone who's actually turning away from God, but calling out to God. 
And the important thing that I wanted to pick up here is in verse 9, after he said about what's happening and calling on God to act, he then makes the right and assumption by faith that ultimately God will do what's best. And he says in verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. God is for me. Who is for you? I wonder if you ever use that phrase of God. Do you ever, you ever think of the phrase, God is for me? kind of means God's on my side in one sense, but it means so much more than that. And that's an idea that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 8 when he says, <clears throat> pardon me, in, in verse, uh, sorry, I, forgive me for putting glasses on and taking them off, but I'm kind of in between glasses. I, I, I need reading glasses for really fine things. But Paul says in Romans 8.30, What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? That is one of the strongest and most arresting lines in this whole passage. If God is on our side, what is there to fear? If God is for us, what harm can come to us ultimately? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, to understand the importance of that, we need to go through a survey of the whole Bible. And uh, we won't do that this morning. But it's in the context of Paul is talking about the God who brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them through the Promised Land, brought them into the promised land and established them as a kingdom. Time after time, re-established good kings and prophets after, after they had turned their backs on him. Time after time. And ultimately sent his son. He, as Paul then goes on to say, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, Paul is elevating God to his rightful place in people's minds and understanding. He's saying, don't think of God as just one of many superpowers. Don't think of God as the nations around about you or the people in the culture around about you think of him. If we were in Paul's time, he would be dealing with polytheistic people, people who worship many gods. And so they had to make sure if their crops were going to be right, they had to worship the God of the crops. If they wanted good weather, they had to worship the God of the good weather. If they wanted good health or they wanted fertility or they wanted a wife or a husband or whatever it is, you, you, you offered an offering to that God, whoever it might be. And God is saying, above all that, there is no other higher authority. And ultimately, of course, he's saying there are no gods, the other gods. That's why it's important when we think about the original commandments that God gave his people. The very first commandment, God says, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, no one else could do that. You will have no other gods before me. He is supreme. No higher authority. I've heard Sunday school teachers many years ago who wanted to say to kids, um, you want to know what Jesus is like? Well, he's kind of like Superman. And I thought, no, he's not. He's not a Superman. 
He is perfect man, but he's not just a superman. Because when we do that, we're really saying, here is man and God's just a, Jesus is just a bit, 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 bit higher, a bit stronger, a bit better, does a few more tricks. God, every time he's presented to his people, every time he speaks, every time he acts, he is saying, I am the Lord. There is no higher authority. There is no greater power. There is no one who loves you more. And I will show this in my life and in my dealings with my people. I will show the extent of my care, my grace and my love. Now Paul's wrapping those sort of ideas up here and he said, if God is for us, if this God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul's giving assurance here, not that life's going to be sweet and lovely for believers right today. He's talking about eternal security. He's talking about knowing where we belong, knowing to whom we belong, and knowing where we will belong for eternity. He's talking about eternal assurance that through faith in his son Jesus, we can have that confidence in him that ultimately he brings everyone who trusts him to himself and nothing separates them. Well, I could stop right there. That's kind of the end of the passage, isn't it? Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And maybe I should, but I haven't done my 18 minutes yet, so I will talk a little bit longer. Let's just read through a bit more of that. Paul is wanting to here highlight some of the ways in which we can be tempted to not rest fully in God, not to have that assurance. He said, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, who brings the charge? Well, lawyers do, the judges do. People get charged with things. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And Paul's answer, it is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? In other words, try comparing them. It is God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Who are you trusting in? Where is your confidence? Is it in the nagging voice that says you're not quite worth enough? Or you've let God down again and you've failed this time and who's going to be able to pick you up out of this hole and who's going to remake you after that mess and who's going to forgive you for that sin? He said God justifies. And that is what Romans 1 to 7, those seven chapters, kind of fill out. God justifies his people through faith, not through the works they do, not through anything of their own strength or activity, but through faith in his son, Jesus. God the Father forgives, brings new life, and draws to himself all who put their faith in his son, Jesus. And God then says, you are justified. You have received the righteousness of God. It's a done deal. He doesn't give it a little bit and said, no, if you're good for the next year, then next Christmas I'll give you a little bit more. And when you turn 50, I'll get you a little bit more. And if you live to be 80, well, then you get a whole lot. No, no, no. We become believers. We become followers of Jesus. We are justified. It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Paul's answer to that is no one. The voice of the enemy might try to accuse 
But beside God's, God's justification, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go back to chapter 8, verse 1. Paul goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All those things might be threats at various times, but there are a lot more we could add to that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, nothing external really can, says Paul. The only, the only, I suppose, caveat or thing we need to beware of is that we don't allow ourselves to put so much pressure on ourselves by taking on board the cares and worries of the world around us to the point where we say, well, I'm not even sure that I'm in the love of God. We actually allow ourselves to be drawn right down into a hole. Now, some people, when they get to that stage, I have to ask myself, look, were they ever believers in the first place? I do know one or two people like that. I had a woman in a congregation that I was leading quite some years ago, and I'd been preaching on a series, and throughout the time I'd talked about the fact that at times God will test his people quite strongly. And I used examples of people whose, whose children were, were threatened. And the idea was to try and get adults to stop believing in Jesus to convert to another faith, to give up Christianity. And I said, and sometimes these regimes had used their children as a tool to try and drag the parents away. And I said, uh, more or less, well, how would you be faced with that? Would your faith stand the test? And one woman came up to me and she said, I couldn't do that. She said, if my children were threatened, she said, I couldn't, and I couldn't let them suffer. She said, I'd have to deny Christ. Now, I won't tell you where that conversation went after that. That's another story. But you see, there are pressures that will come. And they test where the assurance that we have in Jesus really rests. Does it rest in him or does it rest in us and our own strength? Paul is really saying here, it must rest in the finished work of Jesus. We must be able to say, no matter what the trial that comes, I am confident that he has me. I am confident that he will keep his word. I am confident that he is the God who has throughout history continued to demonstrate his ability to draw his people out of the worst possible circumstances in faith to stand and not be shaken. We could go back through story after story from the Old Testament and New Testament and look at people whose lives were challenged so strongly and yet they stood firm, not because they were super Christians, super believers, not because they were great women and men of faith, but because they were people who knew who held them, people who knew the God who held them. And Paul is really wanting to reassure his readers here that that is the God who holds us. If we are believers in Jesus, if we are those who've been justified, God holds us and sustains us. And so he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, naked, danger or sword? No. In all these things we are, do I hear anyone say it? More than conquerors. That's right. few voices actually spoke out loud. That's amazing. Good. We are more than conquerors. 
Do you think of yourself as more than a conqueror? I mean, what happened? How can you be better than a conqueror or more than a conqueror? Paul's really saying what we are is so much bigger and better than we can imagine. Um, and again, if we look at all that the, the Bible has to teach us about what it means to be a saved person in Jesus, it's to be someone who's clothed in light. It's to be someone who's clothed in righteousness, someone who's been brought from death to life, someone who was once dead and going to hell but has now been raised to the status of son or daughter of the living God. And on and on we could go looking at the ways in which God elevates the status of his people. That is us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here we can, I hope, all echo with Paul when he says, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fellow believers, we are held by the precious hands of the only true God. We are saved by the precious blood of the only true Saviour, the only eternal one, the only one who has died for the sins of the world. We are held and nurtured by the one who has put his life in us. We are the recipients of his spirit. We are those who know the living God and that is the living God who will sustain us and hold us through every moment and every phase of this physical life until the day we see him face to face. Amen. Can't go without singing a song. Like the sun that rises every day You are so faithful Dear Lord, you are faithful Like the rain that you send And every breath that I breathe You are so faithful, my Lord Like a rose That comes alive every spring you are so faithful, dear Lord, you are faithful Like the life that you give to every beat of my heart You are so faithful, my Lord I see a cross and the price you had to pay I see the blood that washed my sins away In the midst of the storm Through the wind and the waves You'll still be faithful You'll still be faithful When the stars refuse to shine Time is no more You'll still be faithful You'll still be faithful, my Lord Like a rose that comes alive every spring You are so faithful, 
dear Lord, you are faithful Like the life that you give To every beat of my heart You are so faithful, my Lord I see the cross price you had to pay I see the blood that washed my sins away In the midst of the storm Through the wind and the waves You'll still be faithful You'll still be faithful When the stars refuse to shine And time is no more You'll still be faithful You'll still be faithful, my Lord Great is your faithfulness Great is your faithfulness Oh, great is your faithfulness Lord, unto you 